Well, are there any questions, I guess, about all that? I felt really, I have to tell you, I was really torn uh, trying to figure out how to meaningfully condense, uh, I don't know, 20-some hours uh, usually that I have to cover this subject uh, in 45 minutes, but, uh, and I didn't do all of it by any means, obviously. What, let me just tell you a little bit about the class that I do and what I wish I could have had the time to do here is, but I know we don't have the time. Uh, I, I, have, I break the class into six primary questions that we all ask. Uh, where do we come from? This is on the second page, by the way, of that handout that I gave you. Where do we come from? Why are we here? What's our mission in life? Uh, the whole thing of what is evil and where did it come from? Uh, because that's something that all of us deal with, whether we want to or not. It's something that we all personally deal with. Uh, what can be done about evil is the fourth question that every philosophy or religion has to be able to answer. Can anything be done about it or not? Uh, the fifth one is the whole idea of how do we change? How do we change from what we are to what we might want to be or, from my vantage point, who God designed us to be more? And the last one is how does death relate to life? When this life ends, what, what's after that? What does that mean and everything else? And I spend two weeks on each of those questions. The first week, answering it from the vantage point of the philosophers since the time of Plato. How did they answer that question uh, in these five different groupings that I looked at today? And it's just one quote after another that we look at. It's first-hand information. It's direct information from them. It's not me just summarizing it. It's here's what they have said. And then I spend uh, the next week looking at the Bible, and I give them all of the major passages uh, out of the Bible that deal with the question of where do we come from or why are we here or that sort of thing. And I just spent an hour and a half doing a, an exegetical study. I go through those passages verse by verse uh, and look at them in depth for them. Uh, the first one, why are we here or where do we come from? I, I spent an hour of the hour and a half class on Genesis 1, 1 and 2. Uh, so we spend a little, we go a little bit in depth uh, about all that, but that's sort of what we do and all that. And it's, it's fascinating for me to see, here's what has been said, here's what the world's telling us, and here's what God says. And there are times when the world is right. They, they, they observe things enough and they got it right. But usually what happens that you see is they sort of got it right. They got it just close enough that it's still viable, if you will, but it's just far enough off that if we keep following it, it leads away from further and further away from what God designed. Uh, and, and that, if, if you, I didn't really have a chance to talk about it today, but if you notice the views that we looked at today, those five different categories, those are just categories I made up to try to summarize a whole lot of isms into just five groupings. But uh, deism is very, very close to theism, what the Bible teaches about God. It's just a little bit off. But for all practical purposes, where it leads is no different than humanism, which was the last one, further and further away. Because if God is not involved at all, then I'm responsible for myself, for making life work for myself. I'm the one that determines my mission, why I'm here. I'm the one who has to deal with evil in my life and get rid of it. 
it all comes back to me having to take care of all of it and everything, which is a hopeless situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is this thing on? Yeah, <laughs> there we go. What's um, your name? My name is Sheldon. Sheldon, okay. Hi, Sheldon. Um, I really connected with the whole genie in the bottle thing. Like, you can't just rub the lamp and, and uh, have God do anything that you want. Yeah. I was wondering, um, like, like, why should I pray? Um, yeah. And does prayer change anything? Okay. Why should I pray? And does prayer change anything? Uh, prayer is, when, you, when I look at prayer in the Bible, it is, prayer is simply an expression of faith. And faith is the idea of, I believe there is a God and he hears and responds. Uh, he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of those who seek him. He, he wants to. It's like a, the way the Bible depicts God in that context is it's like a father that has a child, a young child. And the father wants to do everything he can for the benefit of the son. He wants the very best for his little boy or girl. Wants the very best for them. Uh, he just wants to be asked. He just wants to be recognized that I'm here. Uh, just ask me and, and I will do what's best for you. <clears throat> so why should we pray? It's because there is a God and he is all-powerful and he is involved and wants to be involved in my life. He just doesn't want to force himself upon us either. He wants us to ask. Now, asking doesn't, well, why should I ask? Doesn't he know my thoughts and my feelings and all of those kind of things? Asking is for our benefit. It's coming to the end of myself and saying, I can take care of it myself. I don't need you. And it's saying, God, I do need you. I need you in my life. I need you to respond. Now, the one thing we need to understand about prayer, I think that I, I had so many misconceptions about it, and I'm sure I still do, is uh, we need to pray, uh, we see in First John and other places, according to his will. Uh, there are times when I pray selfishly. James says, you have not because you ask not, and uh, you ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives, uh, personal selfish motives. God, would you give me that new yacht? Uh, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, <clears throat> but not, not even saying yachts are wrong, but I'm just saying, uh, whatever it is, I just ask just because I want it. It's not anything to do with him or his design for life, uh, what he wants to accomplish. Uh, but, but I think that's people, for instance, I'll give you a quick example. I was in a prayer group with a group of elders a couple of years ago. And one of the elders had just found out he had a, a form of cancer. It was not a, uh, it was a kind of cancer that the doctors had already said, we'll be able to take care of this. And you've got a 95% chance of recovery. It's not particularly dangerous long-term. And, uh, but we were praying and every guy around there said, God, would you heal him? 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 And it came, I was the last guy to pray in that circle. And I said, God, I don't know what you want to do. I don't know if you want to heal Ken. I don't know what your grand plan is. You know, that's what I would want and what all of us in the circle would want, but I don't know what you would want. Uh, we know that you can, uh, heal him, uh, and that sort of thing. But I, I really don't know uh, what you want to do. And we want to, I just want us to submit uh, 
to you and what you want to do and accept whatever you choose to do as being the very best. To me, that's a prayer more consistent with God's will. Like Jesus in the garden, uh, Lord, if it's possible for you to, would you take this cup from me that I don't have to go to the cross and do all these things, but not my will, but yours be done. Uh, Unless I really know, there are certain things in life I know, according to the Bible, God wants. God has said, this is the way I want it. And I can pray consistently for those things. But the things I don't know, do I know why someone is sick or why someone, what God wants to accomplish through that? I really don't. You look at the book of Job. Job went through a lot of suffering and it had nothing to do with anything he ever did wrong. In fact, he was the most righteous man on the earth at that time. Uh, and if you look in Job chapter 1 and 2, it was God's idea. Uh, Satan says, he says, what have you been doing? He says, I've been going throughout the earth uh, looking for people basically that I can trip up. And he says, have you considered my servant Job? Why don't you, why don't you go think about him and everything? So God allowed that intentionally, purposefully. Uh, when you get to Job 42, you see Job saying, before, I had heard of you with the hearing of my ear, but now my eyes see you. Before all this started, you were like, someone, you were like a, a rock star that I had heard a lot about. But now then, I know you personally. We look eyeball to eyeball, and I see you more clearly for who you are. And he says, I'm going to shut up and listen now. I've been talking too much. He says, I, I need to come before you. I see you more clearly for who you are. My, my focus is back on you and not on me and all my problems, it's on you. Uh, and what a glorious place to be. Joseph said uh, to his brothers, you intended this for evil, for harm for me, but God intended this for my good. Um, so I've got off of your question a little bit, but anyway, pray because God is there and he's like a daddy that wants the very best for you. And he wants to be involved. He doesn't want to just give us whatever we want. He, he wants to give us what we need and what's best for us in the long run. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you gotta. Oh, uh, just a. Uh, oh, my name is Victor, by the way. Um, Hi, Victor. I guess uh, I. It's great. Took s several pages of um, of your talk this morning. Um, I guess uh, seeing the guilds, the seven characteristics of a follower of Christ. Um, can you talk about the interplay of uh, the biblical worldview among those seven characteristics? I look at the seven characteristics and. Mm -hmm. I see developing a biblical worldview and studying scripture as just the, maybe the second one, biblically measured. Mm -hmm. uh, can you perhaps maybe briefly, uh, maybe for you know, just a minute each, just what does it mean to be passionately committed to Christ in a biblical worldview? Um, sure. you know, to be a morally pure, or I think maybe some, a lot of us have an idea of some of those things, but discuss the interplay between the world and applying a biblical perspective on the seven characteristics yeah. of a follower of Christ. Of, sure. Because I see that in front, and I know we focus on just the grand, uh, the yeah. forest. Of, yeah, <laughs> that's uh, true. Of a biblical worldview, but I guess yeah. maybe the trees of these seven characteristics of really applying it in our lives. Yeah. I think what I talked about today was more the need to develop a biblical worldview in the midst of the mold that, that's around us and that sort of thing. On this, these seven characteristics, uh, and, and I'm being somewhat presumptive because uh, I've not read all of the explanations behind this, but 
these are the same seven that we have at our church, so with a slight variation, so I'm sure, I think I have an idea of most of them. To me, the, the Bible, what this is saying is this is the filter through which all the rest of our worldview, all the rest of life needs to go. And, and it's through the Bible that I understand the rest of the six. Uh, to be passionately committed to Jesus Christ, uh, it's basically saying uh, He is the priority of my life, not me. In order for me to be passionately committed to Jesus Christ, I have to stop being passionately committed to Rick Taylor. You understand? Uh, I, I've got to come to the end of myself. Anytime you do a... Jesus said repeatedly these kind of things, and we see it throughout the New Testament. If any man will come after me, what's the first thing he has to do? Deny himself. We've got to say no to ourselves. We've got to come to the end of ourselves. Jesus in Matthew 5, when he gets into the Beatitudes, uh, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who are bankrupt in their own spiritual abilities, who've come to the end of themselves and say, I can't do it anymore. And that's the first of the Beatitudes. So I think this first one is saying, I've come to the end of myself, and I want Jesus Christ to be the, the master. As he says, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount again, you can't serve two masters. It's, it's God or mammon. It's God or other things, basically. And uh, it's, this is coming to the conclusion, he is the master. He is the one in charge. Not me, not some other thing, some other person, whatever. He is that. Biblically measured means my life is measured. My life is uh, weighed out. I make decisions in life based upon what this says. That I've, I understand this well enough that it, all the decisions and ways I think of in life come back to this. And this is the filter through which everything else goes uh, and that sort of thing, which is something that I'm passionately committed to in terms of the, the church, and I, that's one of the reasons I really appreciate the well, is their commitment as well to teaching the Bible, uh, not just in an entertaining way, but in a, although it's good, but I mean, it, they're really helping people understand the scriptures, and that, that's so important to me. It's one thing that the church has lost a lot today overall, in my opinion. The, the next one, being morally pure, I think is somewhat, I'm not sure uh, I would uh, state it quite that way, but the idea behind that is not that you're perfect morally, but, but that that is something that is going to be a growing characteristic of your life, is that there is not a mixture. It's pure in the sense that it's not mixed. One of the things that came out of Platonism or Platoism is uh, he talked about eternal good and eternal evil, that they both exist, and both of them exist at the same time eternally. And what's come out of that for us today that I didn't have a chance to get into is this bifurcation or this dualism of life. Have you ever had the thought or had people tell you, well, it's just business, don't take it personally, it's just business. Or the idea that I have my Sunday life and I have the, my work week life and never the two shall meet. And we don't have any problem with living in those two different worlds, even though they're conflicted in terms of the way we live them. And that's, some of what's, and that's what this is talking about. It's not mixed. It's not two different worlds. I don't have my workaday world and my Christian life morally pure. I'm living by one standard 
And that's the biblical standard. So once again, the Bible becomes uh, the standard by which I determine what is right and wrong, what's morally correct. And I don't have a mixed standard that way. Uh, the next one that talks about healthy families or relationships, uh, that's something all the way through the Bible that we see uh, talked about in terms of, uh, think about this. Uh, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. God refers to himself as a plurality of persons there. And he creates them, male and female, he created them. They, as a plurality of persons, functioning in oneness and harmony, created them as a plurality of persons, male and female. Uh, and he, in Genesis chapter 2, he concludes by saying he wanted them to be one as well. That's part of that reflection of God in the world, as a plurality of persons functioning in oneness and harmony. God himself is a plurality of persons that functions in perfect, humble relationship. And he created us to be in relationships as well. We are designed to be in relationships. Uh, that's one of the reasons why this church will s focus so much upon our... Uh, been walking around with some of the staff, went to Starbucks this morning, and uh, there was a young lady there behind the counter that says, oh, I go to the well, and I was with Jared. And his first question is, great, how long have you been coming? She says, oh, a couple of years. He said, are you in a life group? And it's not because he's just trying to get people. He knows we're made for relationship. We've got to be in relationship with other believers because it's going to help us be morally pure, be unmixed and all of that. We have someone, others in our life that's going to challenge us and all that. Uh, good stewards, uh, when I write about these seven things, I, I translate that to be sacrificially generous. That is part of the character of God. But that's what they're talking about here is to be not only with, I would say it's not just with our finances, but with a steward of all the good things that we have, our talents, our abilities, our time, our finances, we're good stewards of those. We realize those are from God. Uh, he owns it all. He doesn't just own 10% or something like it. He owns it all, and I'm being a commissioned to be a good steward, a manager of what he owns that he's allowed me to have. Evangelistically faithful, it simply means I'm willing to share with other people who God is and what he's done uh, and that sort of thing. I'm willing to do that when I have that opportunity and socially responsible. Again, those, those last two are things that we see characteristics of a person who has grown enough biblically and in their relationship with God to be a reflection of God more in the world. God cares about uh, people in the world. For God so loved the world, not just certain people in the world, He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten. He died for every person in this world. Even the people who hold their fist up at him and said, I hate you and I don't believe you're there and all of those other things. He died for every one of them and uh, he cares about all of them. Now, if I could just in a nutshell paint a picture for you, I would take that very top one as being the heart of a person. That's the passionately committed to Jesus Christ is sort of at the very core of all of this. Uh, I've got to come to that point first of realizing I'm not in charge and he is. I've got to give up, uh, if you will, and, and give him control. The second one 
it would be another circle outside of that that would be biblically measured. Uh, I'm coming to his word and letting it shape my thinking, my way of life, and that sort of thing. The next three, morally pure, healthy relationships and good stewards, would be some of what would be the results. If I am letting this shape the way I think uh, and everything else, there's going to start being some changes in my life in terms of moral purity, good relationships, good stewardship, because the more I spend time here, the more I'm going to understand who God is and how He lives. And the last two are both outwardly focused. So that would be like a fourth circle that, that moves me out into the world in terms of how do I relate to the world. I'm, I'm faithful with my words, evangelistically faithful, and I'm, I'm faithful with what I do in the world in terms of caring about other people with my actions and that sort of thing. So that would be sort of a... Okay? I don't need the mic. Okay. <laughs> What's your name? Scott. Scott. Great. Absolutely. It just gets distorted, kind of warped. Yeah. And the one thing I've been wrestling with a little bit lately is, you know, is our walk to be an active walk? And what I mean by that, I have a tendency to, to kind of audit my life every January and look at how am I as a Christian? How am I as a father? How am I as a husband? Yeah. And yet I have friends that, and I've heard pastors and I've read books, Absolutely. But don't you think we have a responsibility to move towards Christ, to, to move towards obedience and honor the Father? Or are we just to rest and let the Holy Spirit do a work in us? Uh, yes, both of those. Uh, <laughs> the, the whole thing of faith versus, versus works, I think uh, the Bible says, is basically a misnomer. Uh, to think that it's one or the other. Uh, obviously, James talks about without wor works are a demonstration of our faith, if we really have it or not. Here's the subtle thing that I see that's a difference, and, and I, this is just part of your question, but uh, am I working to try to achieve something, uh, to try to get on God's good side? Am I doing works to try to make my life better, to make my life more pleasing to God? Or do I believe that God says, uh, Rick, I, I, when he tells me about being a husband with my wife, when he tells me I need to sacrificially love my wife uh, to the point that I make her more important than me, Jesus giving himself as the example he laid down his life for his bride, the church, and that sort of thing. Am I, so am I trying to please God by loving my wife sacrificially, or am I believing God that he wants me to do that, and so I do it as an act of faith? Because I have to tell you, my culture has taught me it, it's not beneficial. It's not smart 
to make somebody else more important than yourself. So it's an act of faith for me to say, okay, God, I'm willing to make her more important than me. I'm willing to try to do that. But my prayer is, act of faith, God, would you help me? Because it doesn't come natural. It's not easy and that sort of thing. It's a very subtle difference, Scott, to me. Uh, And I find myself, when I'm honest, going back and forth on some of those kind of things. So that was uh, part of your question. I I don't think, you know, Paul says in... uh, in Romans chapter 3, the first part of Romans chapter 3, there is none who seeks after God. There is none who does good. Uh, and he sets that, he takes that all the way three through 1 through 20 in, in Romans there. And then he begins in 321 and talks about what God has done. And the, the reality is we cannot, we, it is not in our nature because we have been poured in the mold of this world, because we are born with a... A, a defective heart going all the way back to our forefather. It's inherited from our forefather Adam and all the way down. It's been passed down. It is impossible for me to seek after God or to do good in my own strength and ability. Uh, I can't do that. So unless God is involved in some way, uh, it's not going to happen. Uh, part of faith to me is saying, okay, God, I can't do it. I need you to help. God, I, I hear what you're saying here that I ought to do. God, would you help me? That's an act of faith because I can't, it's not going to come natural and that sort of thing. So I'll be the first to tell you, stop trying to live a, a deistic life of works and saying, I've got to be good enough for God. My, like Jefferson said, my good works have to outweigh my bad uh, for me to go to heaven and be with God and for him to be pleased with me and all of that. Hogwash. You know, that's not what the Bible teaches at all. Yeah, yeah, no, but you are, and that's okay. Sure. Sure, but those efforts, are they trying to achieve what, is, what you can achieve as a human being apart from God, or is it a sense of surrender, uh, God, I don't do this naturally, I can't do this on my own, I need your help, I'm stepping into this by faith. Uh, I mean, I could bring that right down to every little decision that I make in terms of being sacrificial in, in my love for my wife and that sort of thing where I'm told to do that in Ephesians chapter 5 and other places. When I go home this weekend, the decisions I make about my wife who's been at home with her mother who lives with us, who has Alzheimer's, uh, it's very difficult. and I have to make a decision. I'm going to be tired uh, from this trip and everything else. God, everything in me wants to just say, hey, I've had a long weekend uh, and everything else, but she needs my attention. God, it's not going to come natural. God, would you help me to do that? And I take a step in that direction. Even though I don't feel like I have the energy, God, would you give me the energy, give me the, the ability to do this and that sort of thing. And I take that one step. But it's prayerfully, it's saying, God, help me. Because I can't, I'm not going to do it 
naturally on my own. I, I may try and get started, but I'm going to keep failing if I do. Well, so I think it's a yes and, but it's a matter of are we doing our works by faith or is it doing works to achieve something that God says you can't achieve on your own? So, good question. Yeah, right back here first. And... My name is Brent. <clears throat> Thank you Brent. for uh, what you shared. Um, I'm wondering about, uh, you know, you've got all those categories of the isms, you know, all those different yeah. um, things. But um, in a dialogue with someone, um, bringing that down to kind of street level, you know, if you're talking with someone, do you have some sort of hypothetical situations that you, because since we all have a worldview, whether we're mm -hmm. conscious of it or not, yeah. uh, maybe hypothetical situations you might throw out in a discussion to help surface what is that worldview um, in someone else's mind? Yeah. Um, anything along those lines? Uh, yeah, I'll try to do that. Um, uh, there were... There were a couple years, two or three years, that I taught at a state university, and, uh, and I couldn't teach anything about God, uh, specifically, or the Bible, or any of those kind of things. But we were dealing with issues like these kind of things, and uh, what I would keep forcing, asking people to do, I didn't force them, I, I would ask questions that would sort of force them to go in a direction. But where does that lead? So if that's true... If I am what's ultimate, if I am, for all practical reasons, God of my own life, so does that mean you really don't need to obey the laws? But it's not consistent that you need to obey the laws if you are God, you are ultimate in your own life, and everybody else is. Uh, I, I would just ask them, does that mean it's okay for me to kill you? I'm God. I, I'm not accountable to anyone. Well, no. And I said, why not? Uh, I just found myself asking a lot of questions that way to sort of force people, not, not trying to be heavy-handed about it, but just help them to see by asking questions like that where the implications are. Because that's the thing. All of these things are very subtle shifts. They're, like Scott said, there's, just, there's bits of truth in all of them and everything, but the little bit of difference when you carry it out, when you go all the way out to the end of the branch, uh, it gets very slim. And, and what I find, and I found at the university when I do this, people say, well, no, I don't believe that. I don't want that. Well, I says, well, then you've got to come back here. We've got to reevaluate this. And so I would ask questions. I, you would be surprised hearing me talk with people about these things that are different than me. I probably spend 80% of my time asking questions, not telling them things. Because it, it's amazing if you just keep asking them questions, they take themselves out on a limb. And they say, I can't, can't stay there. Okay, well, then we've got to come back here. And see, I think it goes wrong by saying God is not involved in this world, deism, at all. I, have, I see no reason for believing that. If God created this world, what is it that makes me believe that he's not involved in this world? If I am ultimate, if I'm humanism, I am the God of my own life and that sort of thing, it's totally inconsistent socially. It, makes it, it is totally bogus to say, well, we just need to collect our, I mean, quite frankly, humanism and democracy uh, are very, very compatible uh, because humanism, by default, since it doesn't work socially, it says, well, majority rules <laughs> when it comes to social issues. 
That's why you had a, we had a Supreme Court justice not too many years ago say, well, the Constitution was written back in the 1700s for people in that day. That was their majority rule. We need to reevaluate what, for today, what we want it to be, what the rules are, uh, and that sort of thing. So it's sort of uh, assessing the moral outcomes, you know, looking, Absolutely. doing a moral hypothetical and kind of exploring that and then... Uh... Yeah, and the inconsistencies, just because every one of these things has, have inconsistencies about it uh, and that sort of thing, that it becomes fairly, it becomes fairly easy to start seeing the inconsistencies and just asking questions to help them do that. Now, I know I'm speaking in general terms, I'm not giving you the specifics you're asking for and that sort of thing, but uh, if you have a specific situation in mind, I'd try to do that. But I don't at the moment, but uh, thank you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, down here somewhere. Thank you. All right. I have a quick question about the outline you provided for us. Mm -hmm. uh, the third point for the six major issues about evil. Um, the question is, what is evil and where did it come from? Yeah. And the worldview is that evil is something the Creator God allowed and mankind has to fight to resist it. Or, as the Bible teaches, the concept of evil originated in the mind of God, mm -hmm. though God could, ne could never do evil. My question is, um, mm -hmm. can you anchor kind of in the idea of the concept of evil originated in the mind of God, but He's not responsible for the evil? There's a lot of controversy about that. Sure. Uh, as you study the Bible, uh, contrary to a lot of the philosophy, I mean, there's not a person in the world that's ever existed that would, uh, hasn't had to wrestle with evil. Okay? Uh, now, there would be people who say, well, like Spinoza uh, and others that would, in pantheism, would say, well, evil's just a figment of our imagination. It's just something we've made up, and we just need to get that out of our system somehow, and, and that sort of thing. But most everybody else would recognize there is evil and where did it come from and all that kind of stuff. Uh, when we look at the Bible, uh, evil is not the absence of good. Uh, evil is uh, not an independent functioning thing like Plato would say, that it's always existed independently. The, the material world's always been evil, always has been, always will be. It's always existed and it's evil. It's not that according to the Bible. What I see the Bible describing evil as, as is the uh, degradation uh, in some way, the degrading of good. Okay, let me give you an illustration. If I had a lead pipe and I put it outside and left it there for uh, a year in the weather, and I picked it up after a year, now it might have some other things on it, but what would happen to that lead pipe leaving it out in the elements? It'd get rust on it, right? It would develop rust. Have you ever seen rust just start growing in the air? It always attaches itself to something else and grows and feeds off of it and it deteriorates it. Uh, another example, my son up in Oregon just uh, bought a house and when he bought the house they said your shake roof will last for about another 10 years. He had a guy come out to do a few repairs on it and the guy says, no, the whole thing needs to be replaced. He said, why? And he said, the moss has gotten underneath the shakes and between the shakes and, and in portions on the shakes uh, on top of them to where it has eaten away 
at the shake shingles up there enough. Some places, the shake shingle is so thin that the water can actually soak through it and begin to cause problems uh, if it hasn't already. Uh, that moss that was on there, it doesn't just grow in the air by itself. It always feeds off of, it always attaches itself. Evil is a perversion or a deterioration or a degradation of what is good. And good has always been here. Plato had it half right in a sense that good is eternal. It's just that the Bible says good is God, not knowledge, not just the mind. And God has always existed. God is good. He is the very definition of what good is. And therefore, the concept of something being contrary or being a perversion of that has always existed as well. Not the, not the evil practice itself, but the concept, the potential. God knows everything. So God not only knows what is good, he knows what would be possibly a perversion of what was good. So that's why I'm saying the concept has always been there because God has always been there. And he knows all things. Okay. Now the practice of evil, according to the Bible, didn't begin until we get to Satan. And again, Satan instead took his eyes off of God. Ezekiel 28 saw, his, saw himself and that sort of thing and t turned away from God. Uh, that's where it began. Yeah, it does. And, and other places as well. Yeah. 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 Does that make sense at all, by the way? The concept, so did God create evil? He didn't create evil, it's just that he has always been good, and so the concept, the possible perversion of that, the knowledge of that has always been there in God's mind. He knew that. But it was the practice of evil is different. When people talk to me about evil, I try to ask them, are you talking about the concept? Uh, where did it come from? Or are you talking about the practice? Because the Bible makes a distinction. We don't sometimes. But the concept has always been there because God's good and he's always been there. But the practice began with Satan. Okay. Yes. They're trying to record this, I think. So. Uh, hi, my name's Coleman. Um, I'm a uh, I'm a Fresno State student, and uh, like I've spent much of my last few years learning as much as I can. And uh, when you were talking about Plato, I realized that I have a tendency to worship knowledge. Yeah. And I was wondering uh, if you have any pra practical steps to uh, identify when I'm doing that, or how to how to get away from that, or to address that? Sure. Uh, I think part of that it has to do with what's the purpose uh, of the knowledge. Because again, I, I feel like uh, God says, it seems to me in the Bible, that the gateway to life change is mind change, changing our perspective. Don't be conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that is the front door, if you will, to life change, is to change our perspective. If you went and talked to someone who deals with recovery issues, uh, they would tell you until someone changes their perspective on what the issue is in their life, no matter how much you try to change their behavior, because their perspective hasn't changed, they're going to keep coming back to it. You've got to change your perspective before you can change the way you feel about things and the way you choose about things. So I think... I don't want to answer this question in such a way that says knowledge is a bad thing. I don't think Plato was wrong in some ways to say knowledge is good overall to have that. Uh, 
However, I think that we need to make sure that it's passing through this. Uh, I have a guy, and when I, I'm teaching a class I teach every year through the book of Romans. We spend a whole year with about 40 of us that we go through the book of Romans. And uh, he keeps coming to me. His name's David, and he keep, every class just about, he'll say, well, I was reading this book, and it said this, and he'd start throwing out these theological ideas on whatever passage we're at in Romans. And, and I've been reading this, and I've been reading this. And I finally said, David, how much time did you spend reading those uh, 20 verses we were going to look at this week in the book and studying them and what the words are and how they're used and that sort of thing? He says, well, I read it a couple times. I said, how much time did you spend reading the theology books? He said, I, I probably spent three or four hours. And I said, that's what's shaping your mind, not this. Spend the time here first. And I've challenged him. I've said, there's nothing wrong with the theology books necessarily. But when that becomes your primary focus and this becomes secondary, you've got it backwards. This has got to be primary. Uh, and those other things then, once this is something that is constantly changing my mind and that sort of thing, when I study the other things that I'm studying, this helps me to, be, to filter through those things, whether it be Plato or whoever, whatever you're studying in school. I, I don't, you know, God just wired some people to really enjoy studying and learning and that sort of thing, and I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that. It's just the purpose of it. Am I trying to gain knowledge to be somebody for myself or for how it makes me feel or to know more than other people uh, and that sort of thing? Or am I wanting to learn so that I can be more of the man or the woman that God wants me to be? Uh, and that sort of thing. I, I have never taken a philosophy course in my life. Never have. I have never read a philosophy book from cover to cover. I've read most all of the philosophers. You know, I'm sort of a weird guy that way. Uh, I remember taking a Christmas break uh, three years ago, and I decided to read all 1,700 pages of Darwin. That was my exciting Christmas break uh, to do that. It's just sort of weird. But it wasn't just so I would know Darwin, because I felt like Darwin was such an influential person in our, our culture today. I wanted to read that and be able to help other people understand what he, what he came from, or what he was writing and that sort of thing. And I wanted to be able to do it compared to this. So I don't, personally, you're going to have a hard time getting out of me that it's wrong to study, but to worship it, to say, this is the most important thing, I think is a, is a dangerous thing to do. But God, I want to, I wanna, you created me this way, you designed me this way, I want to be used by you in some way this, with knowledge and, and that sort of thing. Would you use me that way? Help me to understand when I'm getting off base and all that. Does that help at all? Yeah, yeah, and I think that is wrong. Not the knowledge itself, not to be a student, uh, but but I think again purpose. Why? And I think it's just something prayerfully to submit it to God and say, God, how you know help me with that and everything. Good question. Good question. Uh, back here. Mm -hmm. My name is. <coughs> excuse me. My name is Yvonne. 
just kind of going with what you said, to, would you uh, agree that the way to develop and strengthen a biblical worldview is to totally go with what, the, like the Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. So you learn the word of God and you study it so much so that in every area, whether it's your marriage or in parenting or in education, yeah. that filters there God's word and you let God's word be what dictates what you believe to be true and accurate. And yeah. tied with that is definitely a concept of who God is. Yeah. Like in the uh, situation with your child dying is, you know, you had a wrong idea of who God was. Yeah. And I think that's probably what really will help develop a biblical worldview in everything is to know who God is. He, he's sovereign, therefore, and knowing who he is from the Bible. Yeah. Would you, is that Absolutely, I would agree that to me, this ought to be a preoccupation of our lives. Uh, the, this ought to be something that we spend time in. And some of you are saying, well, I'm just not a reader. or that You get paid to do that, Rick, and everything else. There are times in my life when I haven't gotten paid to do this uh, by any means at all. And uh, it's, I think it's got to be because what's going on in the world around us is going on. You cannot... Uh, insulate yourself from everything that's going on in the world. It is totally impossible. So what are we doing to counteract that? Uh, and we've got to do something to on an ongoing basis. To me, this is something I go to this book on a regular basis and say, God, I need you to show me who you are, how you design life to be lived. Show me. Help me to see. Help me to see where I'm really off base. And that's my prayer as I come to this book is, God, Help me to see what you're saying, what I need to know, and that sort of thing. That's got to be a preoccupation of our lives because of the messed up world we live in. We really do. It has infiltrated every fiber of the way we think and make choices in life, and we've got to do something to counteract it. And again, that's one of the reasons I really appreciate the well and churches like this who really say that is an important, that's going to be an important part of what we do, no matter what else. We've got to do that. Uh, so I just really appreciate that. And I think my time is up. Uh, so I'm going to have to end right here. Let me close in prayer, and then I think you guys have a break, and then you can go to another breakout and that sort of thing. Father, thank you so much uh, again for who you are. Um, Father, I, I pray you would help us. Help us in in uh, things we don't even know we need help in. I pray you would help us to spend time in your word. God, I pray you'd use the time we've had today in some way in each person's life to help them grow closer to you and closer to the design you have for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all very much. Great questions.